five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. Today we're going to hear from Canadian Space Agency astronaut David Saint-Jacques. At 48, Saint-Jacques will start his first and possibly only mission to the International Space Station in late December. Saint-Jacques is the rare astronaut that is qualified in four disciplines. He has an engineering physics degree and a PhD in astrophysics. He is a licensed doctor and has a commercial pilot license. The last skill will come in handy when on December 19th, Eastern Time, already December 20th in Kazakhstan, he'll co-pilot the Soyuz spacecraft as it launches from the Baikonur Cosmodrome to the International Space Station. And it's no small feat to co-pilot the Soyuz. Chris Hatfield set the precedent and translated the pilot's training manual from Russian to English. For Saint-Jacques, though, he also speaks Russian. Once on orbit, he'll work for six months on the ISS, spending 50% of his time working with the other astronauts to keep the space station in top operating condition. The other 50% of the time, we'll be doing a lot of research, including some important medical experiments that are aimed at benefiting humans on Earth. Saint-Jacques was selected as an astronaut nine years ago. He spent the first two years learning to be an astronaut. After basic training, he was assigned to the robotics branch of the NASA Astronaut Office, then successively acted as support astronaut for ISS Expedition 3536, lead capsule communicator, or CAPCOM, the mission control space-to-ground radio operator for ISS Expedition 38. He was also Deputy Capcom for Cygnus 1 and Cygnus 2 ISS resupply missions and Lead Capcom for the Cygnus 3, Cygnus 4 and SpaceX ISS resupply missions. He also recently acted as the Capcom instructor and supported the visiting vehicle operations in the ISS integration branch. In May 2016, he was assigned his first mission. Based on what Saint Jacques says in his interviews, he seemingly has been training to be an astronaut and fly into space most of his adult life. Ironically, when Saint-Jacques launches in December, it will be six years to the day that the last Canadian astronaut, Chris Hatfield, visited the ISS. It was four years between missions for Hatfield and Robert Thirsk, who flew in 2009. And between 1992 and 2009, that's 17 years, Canadians went on 14 missions. It wasn't uncommon for a Canadian astronaut at the time to have two missions and for a lucky two, Chris Hadfield and Mark Garneau, three missions. However, as funding has gone down over the years for Canada's space program, the amount of available missions has decreased and time between missions has increased. After Saint-Jacques' upcoming mission ends in June 2019, Jeremy Hansen will fly no earlier than 2022. At best, that's three years between missions. And one of Canada's newest astronauts, Joshua Cutrick and Jennifer Seide, when will they fly? Selected in 2017 and following the current pattern, they might not fly until 2025 or 2026 at the earliest. By then, Sejac will be 54. Which is to say, at the current level of funding, it might be hard to get a second flight for Sejac. But with his skill set and a great performance on this upcoming mission, who knows what might happen? On September 6, Saint-Jacques took time from his busy training schedule to talk to the media.
This included a press conference, followed by a very brief one-on-one interviews with the media. SpaceQ had the opportunity to spend a few minutes talking to Saint-Jacques. The Q&A presented here is preceded by his introductory remarks at the news conference and is followed by questions from the media. So, David, um, we've got a pretty diverse list of degrees. Was was that on purpose? <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, yeah, looking back, it looks even strange to me. <laughs> but you know, it just happened one step at a time. I think if, if one thing has defined me as a child was curiosity. Mm. I was, I'm one of those people who just can't stand it when I don't understand something. I, I just got to get to the bottom of it. So that led to me really liking school, really, and trying to stay there as long as I could. So, you know, I started with engineering because I wanted to understand how things worked, how machines worked, and uh, moved on in life to wanting to learn more about how the universe works, how nature works, and that was science, and uh, ultimately, you know, trying to, wanting to know how people work, really. And so that, to me, this quest for knowledge and understanding is, I think, really something at the core of, of who I am, and I think uh, that's at the core of space exploration as well. It's all about understanding where we come from, our planet, our universe. It's also all about exploring and all about, at the end, expanding our perspective. Because that really is a quest, I think, of, of everybody. We, you know, when we're born, it's, our world is very small, and it's just us you know, and our parents. And then eventually it's our city and our country and then our continent and our planet. And one day, I remember seeing those images of beautiful Earth floating in the middle of space. We're like, wow, that's not just one way to look at things. That is reality. This is, that perspective just took my breath away and uh, I determined that I wanted to be an explorer. That's what I wanted to be in life. But first I need to go to stay in university and <laughs> try to understand as much as I could from books first and then eventually from going out there and, uh, and traveling, learning languages, staying fit and one thing led to another. I didn't really think being an astronaut was an option or a possibility, but it was like a model to me. These uh, be curious and just try to keep trying to understand who you are, where you're from, and why. what can we do to be better. In June, when you were at Baikonur as part of the backup crew to Expedition 5657, we found out that a request had been made for you to participate in a spacewalk during your upcoming mission. Can you tell us the status of that request and what type of spacewalk activity has your training prepared you for? So it is that spacewalk is still on the timeline. Uh, you have to realize that. Uh, you know, spacewalks are a very, very uh, flexible uh, part of, uh, of scheduling for a space station. Uh, so there's no guarantees. I certainly hope I will get the chance to do uh, to do a spacewalk. Uh, should the need be, uh, still there. Uh, I'm ready. I've been fully trained. So training for spacewalk uh, is as follows. So first we learn about the spacesuit itself. Spacesuit is not just a piece of clothing. It's actually a, a miniature spacecraft in the shape of a human body. Uh, that you just fit in. And so we get to learn how it works because it keeps you alive. It's got life support, propulsion, communication, and, and all that stuff. So then we use 
to train how to use it. We have this giant swimming pool uh, that has so big that it has a full-size replica of space station in it, and we actually use real spacesuits, but underwater. That way, we're kind of floating to mimic the effect of uh, of being on orbit and, and zero gravity and uh, microgravity. So. That's how we train for it, and we train by practicing using the suit and practicing operating our tools and practicing doing all the uh, you know the the main tasks that you could be doing uh, out, which is essentially to replace broken parts, really, is, or install experiments. So these are the two categories of things that we we do out there. So basically, if uh, if anything needs to be done, you're ready for it. I am absolutely ready and enthusiastic to, to, to do it. And it's true of everything on uh, all the training we do. You never know really what the mission will be until you're up there. Uh, all you can uh, do is, is, you know, try to plan for everything. And that's an important aspect of sp- space station missions um, is that everybody is fully certified to do everything. Uh, that way we maximize our flexibility as a crew to respond to any requirements. Now, you're in a unique position as an astronaut because of your qualifications. You're an engineer, an astrophysicist, a pilot, and a doctor. For this mission, you're listed as a flight engineer and the Soyuz co-pilot. Canada, though, is striving to be a leader in the medical field in space. How much of your working time will be spent on medical experiments, and which do you think is the most interesting? So, uh, right now, I think we're about 50-50, the ratio of... uh, Time spent on maintenance and t- uh, maintaining space station because station is this giant machine that keeps us alive, so we've got to keep it running. So 50% on maintenance, 50% using it, meaning being scientists, you know, and operating experiments on behalf of scientists on Earth. So that will be uh, what I'll be doing when I'm not changing filters, repairing the toilet, doing a spacewalk, or operating uh, Canada Arm 2. I'll be doing science experiments. Most of them, especially those that are sponsored by the Canadian Space Agency, have to do with medical care, either remote medical care or straight-up medical science or biomedical science. Uh, It's all around that theme. Okay. And is there anyone in particular that you you think is going to be really interesting? Certainly. So I'm particularly looking forward to experiments that have to do with the remote medical care, because that's my background. I was a, I was a family doctor in a small Inuit village in northern Canada, and uh, I witnessed firsthand the frustration, really, of being far away from, uh, you know, a, uh, from big medical centers when you have a very sick patient, or just the little frustrations of not having all the lab tools that you could have in a big city, and so, or of monitoring people who are sick or far away from uh, from help, uh, and it's, it's the same problem in space, really. So that unique parallel between the difficulties of medical care in a remote place on Earth and a remote medical care in space, uh, that brings huge research uh, possibilities that uh, Canada is jumping in because anything we can do to help astronauts take care of themselves, take care of each other medically, uh, that technology we can use here on Earth. So we've been, uh, we're working with uh, a company that's developing a, like a smart shirt that would monitor your vital signs constantly and broadcast that wirelessly. So you can imagine how that could be useful uh, in a hospital setting. You know, we don't have to be plugged in as we, when as sick people are when they're bedridden or for military when they're deployed or people who have dangerous jobs and like in the miners or firemen, things like that. You could be monitored remotely. Um, also working on a uh, kind of a portable 
lab, like a, a lab on a, in a box. Uh, right now on station, the overhead of bringing blood samples is enormous, as you can imagine. Take a blood sample, freeze it, wait for the next spacecraft to come back to the ground, put it there, then it splashes down, get recovered. It's huge overhead. Imagine if we could do all that on the spot. So that requirement, because of space, uh, drives us to find solutions to do medical tests right there and then. And if we invent that, well, we, that can be used in every little remote community in Canada. So it's an example of how the rigors of space flight uh, kind of brought us to come up with solutions to problems that then uh, we can expand to everybody on Earth. We open up that a little bit to the rest of the crew as well. Are there are there traditions or, or cultural things that y'all are looking forward to sharing, or that you've been excited to learn from one another? You know, it's interesting. One thing that we all I uh, think uh, come to uh, come to realize uh, with all the time we spent training in, in Russia is that initially you go there to business trip your first time, and you come back home, and it was like an experience. You go back again for training over years and years, and you realize at some point there starts to be two two lives in parallel. And there's you know the Canadian David, there's the American David here at JSC, <laughs> and there's the Russian David in Star City. And uh, you know, three it's starting to be three different person a little. Bit, I eat different things. I dress differently. I, you know, the and just learning another language makes you somehow think differently. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it is a personal kind of wealth that we derive from learning a different culture. Not just, not just working or collaborating. We're actually living there. Mm -hmm. You know. And by the time we reach orbit, we have spent so much time in each other's countries uh, that it's kind of seamless. It's more than work, really. It's another part of your life. is for David Sainjard, perhaps for other members as well. The topic is hard to avoid. We learned this week there was a hole in the International Space Station and that this hole, according to Roscosmos, could have been made deliberately. Um, do you discuss the situation together and what are your feelings today uh, concerning this strange situation? Yeah, we were following this event, you know, as it was going on. Of course, we're on the, we received these emails from the Mission Control Center and uh, heard that, wow, this pressure is going down. And to us first, what that means is like a wake-up call that, oh, all this training we're going through, it's, you know, it's not a joke. It, uh, it can actually come to be useful. So it makes you uh, want to study even harder and train harder to be uh, ready to respond to any, uh, any problem like that. Uh, looks like, fortunately, the situation was resolved. And uh, they not only did they find uh, the hole, but they were managed to, to plug it. So now pressure is very stable, as we heard, touch wood. So uh, this is all very reassuring for, uh, for our friends uh, on board. Now the investigation is going on as to you know what, how, what happened, what is this? It's still a, still a bit of a mystery. It's like a, a detective uh, detective uh, job. That's one question. The more important question is making sure the spacecraft is actually okay. Space station is okay. The Soyuz is okay, and that's really what's on the forefront of everybody's mind. Uh, making sure that the crew on board, the vehicle is okay. Therefore, the crew is okay. They have a, a way to come back home. And so far, it looks like uh, uh, we uh, we are lucky. And if there was 
was a meter height, for example, a meter hit, uh, it did not break anything crucial uh, to the Soyuz or station. So uh, we are, uh, we're all kind of relieved. We are, a lot of people uh, had a sigh of relief uh, when we plug that hole and ah, saw the pressure stabilize. Hi, my name is Marley, and I'm here representing Black Girls Magazine, and my question is for David St. Jacques. In the next 50 years, where do you see, sp see space programs in terms of exploring the possibility of living on other planets considering Earth's environmental state now? Yes, the next 50 years, right? For the generation of, uh, you know, the interns who are here and my children who are even younger. And uh, this, is a, this is a big moment in, uh, in the human space flight, in the history of space flight, because we have been to the moon, you know, a couple of decades ago. We came back kind of almost holding our breath for short missions. Then we've been living in the low Earth orbit environment, learning more about how to live in low Earth orbit, how to live in space for a long time. It's as if almost we had been, you know, getting our camping gear ready in the backyard of our home. And now when we're really ready, then we can take that camping gear and go to Everest. And our Everest is Mars. And uh, there's a couple of questions to be resolved. Anybody here who's got any kind of space pedigree will know that we haven't f figured out all the answers yet, but we will. And the people who will are people who are young today. Uh, I'm not going to Mars, you know. I may be an old professor for astronauts back then, but it's, uh, <laughs> people who are going to Mars are probably born already, but, uh, you know, they're children or young people uh, right now. So it is a dream that uh, for the next generation, but we're making decisions right now as to whether, which way we can, uh, we can uh, bring that, uh, those projects for the next generation. So I think what we can see in the next 50 years is certainly, as Anne uh, pointed out, continued presence in Earth orbit, because this is a great place for which, from which we can observe our planet, take care of our planet, learn more about space and environment, and do amazing research. But then we will start to venture deeper and deeper into the universe, because that's in our nature. Uh, it's that same drive that uh, you know, got us out of the caves millions of years ago, and then up on top of mountains, in the next valley, and then across the oceans, up in the air, and now space is, uh, is our, next, uh, our next challenge. And it is, I think, uh, something that we just have at the heart, at the bottom of the heart of humanity is this desire to explore. And the challenges of space exploration are such that it, it kind of galvanizes the energy and brings the best out of the human soul and the human spirit and the human inventivity. And that way, we get all sorts of benefits for everybody else that kind of just trickle down from this desire to, uh, to explore further and further. So it's the dawn of a, of a great era in space exploration. Yeah. Elizabeth Howell, freelance journalist based in Ottawa, Canada. Uh, David, it's been a long wait for you, nine years. Can you talk a little, little bit about um, the advantages and the disadvantages of having such a long time for training before your first space flight? Ah, <clears throat> well, you know, it's, you can, in a way, you can say I've been preparing for this all my life, and we, we all have been, right? Uh, uh, my, I like to say I started uh, as an astronaut uh, when I was a little schoolboy, really, the first time that I learned about maths and physics and about how to train and how to be serious and do my homework and how to, uh, you know, want to have, how to become responsible. Uh, so it's been, uh, it's been a year of getting ready. Strictly speaking, several years of training technically for this mission, uh, certainly. There is a couple of advantages. I mean, it is long because there's a lot to learn. There's, there's no way to cut 
regret it uh, much. Certainly one nice aspect of it is we get to know each other because we train together. And therefore, by the time we get to orbit, we're already a team. We're already a very functional team. So I think that is a, that's, a very, that's a very nice aspect of, this, uh, of all the training years is the fact that we get to know each other so well. And not only the crew, but also the support team, the flight controllers. We get to know um, everybody who's working backstage. We're the people on stage, and everybody sees the astronauts, but of course, there's thousands of people working backstage, making these missions possible, making sure that we you know, come back alive uh, from those missions, having accomplished these incredible tasks uh, that other people have, uh, have designed for us. So it is a long training plan, but uh, it's well worth it. Hi, my name is Hélène Lorrain from En 5 Minutes, Québécois Media, and my question is for David Saint-Jacques. It's been a hot couple of months and in Montreal and elsewhere in the world, a hot couple of years, actually. Is there a special emphasis or a special project for the mission regarding climate change? Ah, so, well, I mean, generally speaking, I think uh, going to lower Earth orbits, at a, for a personal level, the first thing anybody wants to do is turn around, look out the window, and see where you're coming from. <laughs> it may be a bit paradoxical, putting so much energy and training into leaving the Earth, but the first thing you want to do is look back at the Earth. And that perspective that we have gained of our beautiful planet from orbit, I think is you know, probably the seed uh, at uh, the origin of the environmental movement and uh, at, the, at, the, at the root of this consciousness we now have of how beautiful, amazing, and fragile our planet is. Um, so certainly that pervades the entire space program this notion that uh, we have to be responsible uh, for our planet, that it is our spacecraft, you know? We talk about the space station as this amazing machine that keeps five, six people alive in the deadly vacuum of space. But what about planet Earth? Completely autonomous, completely self-contained, everything is recycled in this giant loop, and it has been keeping billions of people and billions and billions of other uh, species alive in a deadly vacuum of space. And I think, so that realization, that perspective, we, we owe it to spaceflight. And it is one of the fundamental uh, aspects of it. And I think one of the most beautiful thing it has given us is that, that sense of responsibility uh, for Spaceship Earth. Good afternoon. Sean Costello, Spaceflight Insider. David, a question for you, if I may. Can you please share some of the ways that you will be collecting and preserving your personal thoughts, observations, and emotions as you experience spaceflight for the first time? Interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of them will have to be stored uh, in my wife's brain, because I will call her every day and tell her <laughs> what I feel. She'll be the first recipient of all this, so maybe we should record our phone conversations. Um, uh, certainly hope to be able to share this experience with as many people as possible. You cannot hoard such an experience, and it only makes sense, I think, if you share it, and it amplifies it and, uh, and makes it even more uh, worthwhile. Um, so it's one of those things. You can prepare all you want, I think, for space flight, but when you talk to veterans, they kind of look at the rookie and say, well, you'll see. It's hard to explain. It's just a strange place. And uh, you know, we, we have to rely on our capacity to adapt. And amazingly enough, uh, people can adapt to that uh, strange environment. So but I certainly hope I'll be able to, uh, to share this experience with as many people as possible and welcome them on board. 
You've been sharing it so far. I think both of you and, and maybe Oleg has an account too, but on social media, on Twitter, uh, Astro underscore David S. S, right? that's right. All right. His name was David W. Williams. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> already taken. And uh, Astro uh, Animal, right? That's correct. And Ann Ann is A N N M O. Yes. Next question. Hi, Vanessa Lee with CTV News. Uh, the message is, uh, well, the question is for David. Uh, with just over three months to go, I'm just wondering what you feel the biggest challenges are right now in being prepared uh, for your mission. Yeah, so three months might seem like a long time, but it's actually not that much time left. And uh, so after, you know, like a year and a half, two years almost of training, we're more or less done with the technical aspects of our training. We know how to do our tasks, operate the machinery, spacesuit, the robotic arm, Canada Arm 2, uh, the Soyuz. Now we're entering a different phase where we're learning about the science experiments we're going to do. We're learning to become you know, useful, if you want, to the scientists on the planet, on Earth, who have prepared all the suite of experiments uh, for us on board. We're also the subject ourselves of a lot of experiments, measurements on our own bodies uh, as a baseline to determine what's going to happen to us in orbit and later on. Uh, and maybe at a personal level, the biggest phase of, tra of preparation now is kind of we're nesting. We're all, in some way, making sure our family is going to be OK through this, that we're going to be OK through just our personal affairs, you, you get a sense that, oh, two years out, it's too far to think about that. But a couple of months out, you're starting to think, well, I'm actually leaving for a long time uh, in a very faraway place. I better make sure everything is in order uh, in my life before I do that and my family is okay. So for me, I think for my colleagues too, that occupies a lot of our mind uh, at, this, at this time. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash spaceq. We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.